This is a Salt Hill Media original podcast. Hello! Feine Weihnachten! Nalig Shanadiv! Shangang Kwaila! Happy Christmas to you all! This is Fender Jackson. Welcome to the Ireland podcast. This is a very special episode because this week's guest is none other than Derry's royalty, Mr. Phil Coulter. I met Phil in the Town Hall Theatre in Galway on Sunday the 10th of December. It was a night of a dreaded storm, not just out in the streets of Galway, but also within Phil himself, for he had been suffering with the dreaded man flu. Oh, holy jakers! Not the man flu. Yes, dear listener, the man flu. Stronger men than Phil have been confined to the sofa for longer than a week because of this cursed and mysterious malady. Initially, Phil and I had agreed via email that the interview would last one hour. However, whenever he explained his predicament and demanded that the conversation now be cut down to 35 minutes, 40 tops, I of course acquiesced. But you know what? In the back of my mind, I was thinking, this is the fella here that wrote two Eurovision Song winners. He's got five Ivor Novella Awards, which include Songwriter of the Year. He's amassed 23 platinum records, 39 gold records, and 52 silver records. This is the lad that produced Planksty, The Dubliners, and the Furies, and Sinead O'Connor, and Van Morrison, and Celtic Woman, and Joe Dolan, and Celtic Thunder, and loads more, including Boys of One. This is a Gasson who writ The Town I Love So Well, and Score Not His Simplicity, and Steal Away, and Congratulations. Congratulations. Sure, that's just like happy birthday. It's everywhere. And it's making him money. Every time. This is the composer who brought the four provinces of Ireland together to unite for Ireland's call so that they could knock the bejesus out of the all blacks and the all whites and the, I don't follow rugby, but the rugby guys. Elvis Presley recorded this man's music. Elvis, the real one, not even an impersonator. And he took it to number five in the UK pop charts, and number four in the Irish one, and right to the very top in the US August A charts. That's what the real Elvis did with this man's song. This Derry City football supporter done the music for Spider-Man's TV show back in the 1960s. And he's responsible for the Bay City rulers. But we'll forgive him for that there. This here music man here, single-handedly, filled restaurants in the 1980s and the 1990s all over Ireland and America and India and everywhere across the world with his tranquility records. So yeah, at the back of my mind, I was thinking, Phil Coulter, he might just be able to give me longer than 35 minutes. Anyway, 
I got on with the interview. And without any more stuff, here it is. Band, stop that. This is Kevin Burke, and you're listening to the Ireland Podcast. Hello. Who are you, and what do you do? I'm known as Phil Coulter, and I do a lot of things um, connected with music. Um, I write it, I play it, uh, I publish it, I produce it, and uh, I sleep with it. Where's home? Home currently is in Bray, County Wicklow. It's been uh, in a number of places down through the years, but for the last... Um, let me think, maybe 20 years, uh, I'm, I'm based in Wicklow. So you mentioned there, as we were walking up the stairs, that you nearly were born in Balahi. And I know that you, were, you went to school in St. Columns mm. and has got a great alumni. So mm. you have Heaney, you've got John Hume, you've got Paul Brady and so on, so on, Brian Friel. How did those guys inspire you? Well... Not at all, I would have to say in honesty, you know, I mean, I think we were all, I've been asked that question uh, about St. Columns a number of times, was it the school for the gifted, was it a school for the privileged, was it a school for the, for the, for the rich, it was, it was the only school, it was the Catholic second, you know, it was, that was it, that's where you went, um, and I think what, uh, I remember first time we toured America, um, we did a benefit in the Kennedy Centre in, in, uh, in D.C., for field day, and all the guys were there. Um, Hume, Heaney, Brian Freel. Um, we, uh, we were having drinks afterwards, and we were just chatting. And it was, it was the first, probably the only time that we were all in each other's company since, since Columns, you know, Brian Freel, John Hume, Heaney, uh, there was Seamus Dean as well. Um, and we were just talking about some columns, and now there's a kind of motley crew, you know, I mean, who, who may be viewed as what the Americans would call achievers. Um, but all, we've all gone very different directions. One thing that, that we kind of, in chatting that night, I remember just over, over um, a few drinks, well, probably a lot of drinks, in fairness, <laughs> um, was that very, very different guys, very different motivations, very different talents. But the one thing we all had in common was some columns and the work ethic in St. Columns. That's what it was. It was a work ethic. Um, it wasn't that, that, that talent was spotted and costed in, in, St, in St. Columns. It wasn't that at all. It was, it was this thing that um, if, you, if you have a talent, if, you, if God has been good enough to give you a talent, you have an obligation to do something rather than fritter it. Um, if God, God has given you a set of brains, you have an obligation to use them. The, the backdrop was... Um, that the Labour government in the 40s had introduced this Education Act, which was a, a game changer because um, the, 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 the sidebar to all of this, uh, using the talent that God gives you, is that if you do use your brains, if you do use your talent to, to its full potential, you have an opportunity to get a, a university scholarship and you can aspire to a third level education and maybe to a lifestyle that none of your family have in the past. That was the that was the the, uh, the 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 subtext at all times. This you know getting further, using your brain to get to the next level, which was Queens or or, or third level. And that desire to do as well as you could was that coming from within you or coming from the 
Oh, probably a bit of both, really. And and the St. Columns thing would have been very important as well. You know, I can't stress that enough. I mean, that 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 idea of use your brains and get 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 ahead. Um, the family, of course, would have been it would have been. Um, you know, my dad was a cop, um, one of a few Catholics in the RUC, I suppose, um, and he was uh, he managed to. Uh, to get as far as being um, a detective sergeant, which for, for a Catholic back then took some doing. So he was very dedicated and very kind of, I mean, I remember him studying law books and stuff. So, yeah, there was, a, there, was a, there was definitely there was definitely a notion that uh, in this world, um, you only get out of any endeavour what you're prepared to put into it, you know. And did you feel threatened from your father's occupation? Not at all. No, not at all. Luckily enough for me, luckily enough, timing-wise, um, the balloon didn't go up until after Duke Street, you know, um, in which, by which time uh, my, my father had retired from the cops. I mean, I often thought it could have been a little uncomfortable if uh, after that, and the RUC then been perceived, perceived as the enemy, which they weren't. My dad was the village bobby, really, you know, when he cycled into the barracks and... Um, uh, there would be a steady, steady stream of, of, of characters up at, the, at, the, at our front door, um, looking for Sergeant Coulter to sign, you know, some kind of a paperwork or to talk them through some bit of legislation or see how they could get a claim for an insurance, whatever it might be. So he was much. He was kind of half social worker as well, um, and he. Uh, I, I can remember many times the squad car coming up uh, to the to the uh, to the front door to my dad, and as often as not. They'd be younger, younger cops, and they'd say, uh, the lead has just been stolen off, off the top of, of, um, of the Long Tower Chapel. And my dad would go, oh, yeah, that'll be Oki Barrett. You know, he just knew the characters, you know. That was his idea of, of policing and detective work. He just knew them back to front. It wasn't that he was in a good Poirot. What it was is just he knew, he knew the, the, the clientele. I was born in 1973, and... I left Ireland in 1996, just two years before the Good Friday Agreement. Mm. And I see your music as being a soundtrack to a transition of the Catholics being discriminated against mm. to more or less being on equal footing mm. or very close to it. Mm. How do you see it? Well, it's flattering to think. Well, I think it's probably just an accident of timing, all right, that, 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 that my music just, uh, just was kind of percolating at that time. But yeah... Um, we were definitely we were definitely um, regarded as uh, hewers of wood and drawers of water, and that, 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 that phrase is a phrase that I'm quoting from Brian Friel. Here was the occasion um, after winning the Eurovision in 1967. Um, some of the the, the the nationalist members of of, of uh, the corporation, as it was in Derry, persuaded the mayor, Commander Anderson, Commander Anderson, um, to give me a civic reception in the Guildhall. They, they kind of prevailed upon. The civic reception consisted of um, the mayor's car, which was rather beat up, Austin Princess, uh, pulling up to our terrace house in Abercorn Terrace to collect my mother and father and me to go down. Uh, now, the thing about that, that for me was uh, a moment that I cherished because to see the look on my mother's face, and she's dressed up in all her finery, to get into the mayor's car, even though it was a beat up old kind of limo, and go down to the Guildhall, that for me was was winning the Eurovision. That was the moment. That was the moment right there. So, but the the, the actual reception consisted of a glass of dry sherry and fifteen minutes in the uh, in the parlour, and then the, the commander said, "Ah, well, very nice to have had you. I'm very must, must hurry along now. Must hurry along." And off he went. Um, 
And I, I, I thought, well, I wasn't expecting much more because I didn't know what a civic reception was. I hadn't had too many at that stage. Anyway, um, that, that, that evening, this was, that was a Saturday, or maybe not Friday, that evening, um, I got a call from James Doherty, who was one of the nationalist councillors, and he said, listen, uh, we were at that thing yesterday. He said, we're all a bit, we're, we're all a bit ashamed. It was all, it was a bit kind of, it was a bit nickel and dime, you know, a bit, a bit Presbyterian. Um, so listen, I'm, I'm having um, some people around to the house after, after uh, mass on Sunday morning, just, just for a little, you know, a few drinks and this, that and the other. So he said, you know, we thought you deserved a bit more than the half a glass of dry sherry. So at that, uh, James, James Doherty, Doherty's Butchers and Dairy Work were kind of, they were one of the big Catholic businesses. Uh, James was a smashing guy. So in the big, big drawing room, I remember, on the first floor of their home in, in, in uh, Queen Street, where they had a piano, and they had uh, my two old music teachers, and, um, John Malseed and Redmond Friel, um, uh, a couple of the other uh, kind of politicos about the place, and Brian Friel and a few others of that kind of ilk. Um, and I remember in that conversation with Brian Friel, that's when, I, that's when he used that phrase, and it never left me. He said, yeah, the likes of, of Commander Anderson and that, that elite, he said, they consider us, they still consider us to be hewers of wood and drawers of water. I thought that was a great phrase. That was Brian Free. That was Brian Free. So that, that kind of sums it up, you know. We were, we were certainly the second-class citizens. You mentioned Eurovision there. So you famously have won it twice, but on the records it's showing that you won it once. Explain that. Yeah. Well, um, 1967, um, we were then jobbing song, songwriters. We, we, had, we had managed to get signed by Keith Prowse Music. Uh, and we, we, were, we, were, we were given um, a, year's, uh, a year's contract to see if we could kind of prove ourselves as songwriters. At the end of that year, we hadn't set the woods on fire, but we'd had enough songs recorded on, on albums and B-sides and a few minor hits, like in the top 40, whatever it might be, nothing really major. But luckily enough, our publisher, Jimmy Phillips, uh, extended that. And about a month, maybe less, into our second year, we wrote Puppet on the String. And how did we do that? Well, the word went out from the BBC that um, they were opening um, songs to, to songwriters to submit for the Eurovision Song Contest. Uh, Sandy Shaw was a nominated singer, and she would sing those six songs. Memory serves, I think it was on the Rolf Harris show on Saturday nights over a six-week period. Um, so songs had to be submitted on a demo, you know, demonstration tape, uh, anonymously, and then they would be judged by a panel. So this I do remember. Uh, Jimmy Phillips said, this is a good shot here, boys. You know, you could, you could do well here. You could, get kind of, could fast-track you. Again, I thought, well, you know, rather than just try to write a song for Sandy Shaw, this is a different, this is a different, uh, a different project. So, um, at my insistence, we researched a lot of kind of previous winners of the Eurovision. Mm. I was, I was approaching this quite thorough. Probably had some columnist training, I know. Um, and it, and roughly, roughly speaking, it broke down into two, two kind of categories. Winners of the Eurovision were either um, big romantic ballads like the previous year's winner. Udo Jürgens from Austria, a song called Merci Chérie, or the previous year had been a cute song, well, Poupée de Ciel, Poupée de Son, by Serge Gainsbourg. So it was either a cute song or a big romantic thing. And I'm saying, Jesus, it's hard to take on these Italians or, or Spanish or French with the big romantic melody. These guys have a down pat. So we'll, do, we'll go the cute route. Um, and that was one decision. So then, uh, pop it on a string. Um, and I remember at, at our little... Uh, 
our office with a, with a kind of beat up upright piano, banging it out. Um, uh, the, the whole fairgroundy thing, I thought. Um, That's brilliant, by the way. That uh, wee motif in the middle of it. The whole thing. Once, once, once uh, we come up with that puppet on a string. That, that I think that the, the title was the start off point. Um, then a couple of things. Luckily enough, um, uh, I had I had enough skills as an orchestrator and enough knowledge as an orchestrator to know that, um, especially in the Eurovision, but it, it certainly goes for all pop records. That the the four bar intro uh, is very important. You can't vamp for four bars. The four bar four bar intro. <coughs> pardon me. Is your opportunity to kind of set the scene. You know, you capture the moment, you, you create an atmosphere in those four bars because that's, then you're using those four bars rather than just vamping and doing nothing. Um, so, uh, forget this fragrant thing, I came up with the idea of the bassoon because I wanted that kind of calliope sort of pop, 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 pop. So, um, and that was doubled up in the bass, wasn't it? Aye, well, that bump, bump, bump. Yeah. But it, it, it was that sound of pop, 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 yeah. pop. But soon had never been used in pop music, which, yeah. you no, know, it wasn't an unusual thing. And then where did you take that from? Was that, was that listening to Beatles or...? No, or? that was just, I mean, having a, having a knowledge of orchestration. I studied orchestration at Queen's. I knew about what instruments sounded like and, and, uh, and I, knew, I knew the sound of all those instruments. So I thought, this is, this is uh, that, that'll help create that calliope thing. Um, and then the next, uh, the next stage of that was, in our research, discovered that one of the big songs that came out of Eurovision didn't even win, but in terms of copyright, was every every songwriter is drilled into think in terms of copyright songs that endure. You know, that's we 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 all wanted to write what do we call pension songs, <laughs> copyrights that endure. Um, uh, and one of the one of the big songs to come out of Eurovision was Volare, um, for, uh, which won the San Remo Festival for Italy and then represented Italy in the Eurovision and. Just go th- listen to Volari, say what it, what's Volari got now that puts it up in that kind of level. That started off with Volari. Oh, ah, big long note at the front. I wonder if one day did. That's all just, it's homework. It's tricky to sing the one long note as your first note. Well, I didn't care about that. That was Sandy, <laughs> it was Sandy Shaw's problem, but I, 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 I knew that that was going to work. Uh, so, w- in simple terms, we... Uh, we were writing a song, not for Sandy Shaw. I mean, a lot of the other competitors, a lot of the other writers, fellow songwriters, were, were following in the, the style of Sandy Shaw's hits. Yeah. You know, a guy called Chris Andrews who written all of her hits. So they were they were kind of following into that. This is a song for Sandy Shaw. Uh, our contention was to, Sandy Shaw is only the singer. We were writing a song for Europe. Right. And I was I was to, to get the votes from Europe. Oh, that's what it was all about. I mean, uh, I thought once we won the UK. Selection once uh, over those six weeks in the BBC. Once we were voted um, to represent uh, to, to go to Europe, I was kind of quietly confident because I thought this song was constructed for Europe anyway. It's something very Alpine, very Germanic about it. Very much. It was a huge hit. Germany was one of its biggest biggest countries. Yeah, it's it's umpa. I yeah, umpa. You know, yeah, umpa. Yeah. Um, and and by the same token, if you fast forward the tape to the following year when we were back at it again, back at the back at the uh, at the uh, at the piano. Um, congratulations, um, which came about because, uh, uh, well, we kind of haven't won the Eurovision uh, with Poet on a String at our first attempt and, and to win the Eurovision for the first time ever for the United Kingdom. All of a sudden, we're songwriters. So All UK had never won it before that? No. Wow. No, it had done embarrassingly badly. <laughs> um, so all of a sudden, we're songwriters. Um, 
Uh, now we've proved our worth in in the industry in Tin Pan Alley, where all you know where we all uh, were based. I played gigs there, by the way, in Tin Denmark Pan- Street. On Denmark Street. Yeah, yeah. To be, to, to, I mean, to be honest, with you, we kind of lost the run of ourselves, um, and the the process of of, uh, of going into the little demo studio every second Friday to record six new songs, which was which was the drill that was the, the contract. Um, that kind of went by the wayside a bit as we were kind of swanning around playing the songwriter, you know. Got in, you know, we VIP'd in all the clubs in, in London. Or we were hanging about trying to bump into Lennon and McCartney. And did you? No. <laughs> at all. I mean, we did, we did a lot of hanging about, but all what we did do, we took our eye off the ball. That's yeah. what we did. Um, and Jimmy Phillips, our publisher, called us in after a couple of months and said, fellas, listen, um, did great with, with puppet on a string. We're all very happy about that, but... You ever hear the expression, one swallow doesn't make a summer? One song doesn't make a songwriter? The word on you guys, he, he knew how to kind of hurt. He said, the word, word on you guys on the street is your flash in the pan. To this day, even when I say that phrase, I can feel the hurt, I can feel the pain that when sitting up at Jimmy Phillips' essence, when I, I could just see him saying flash in the pan, and I got so, I got so hurt and so angry. We, we adjourned from that meeting with a tail between our legs. Adjourned to the to, to the Red Lion, which was the pub at the end of Denmark Street, and I said, "Jesus Christ, a f- um, lot of lot of bad language." Um, and I remember saying to Bill Martin, "You know what? We'll prove we're not flashing the pan. You know the best way to prove we're not to flash the pan? We'll win the bloody thing again." I, Bill said, "Yes, sir. yeah, let's do it." So that then we were determined to go back to work. Um, congratulations, same principle really. Those first four bars. You know, before you even get to the tune at all. But da 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 Boom, 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 boom. You're already in a kind of a, this is a celebratory kind of a thing. Yeah, you know? yeah. Um, and we did funny, uh, uh, for, the, for, for that, for that um, process, for, for that, uh, submitting the demo for that, we originally thought we were entitled like, should we know, just, if you remember I mentioned uh, Sandy saw that Chris Andrews had written all her hits. So in the previous year, he got... A Chris Andrews song was automatic into the final six, whereas we had to we had to come through like all the selection process as just two anonymous writers. So we thought this year we should get a song into the final six. We won the bloody thing last year, but the BBC were having none of that. No, 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 lads. You go to the back of the queue like everybody else. So, um, so you had to submit the track again without names. Yeah. Oh, well, they didn't do it was our song at all. And did you doubt your ability to get into that final six? No, oh, I knew I knew there was I knew there was a process. I knew how to take this seriously. But we we this this is this where it gets funny. Um, the first song that I came up with was called My Magic Music Box. A little music box he sang. So that those four, the first four bars were all just kind of tinkly music box, getting me into that frame and the song was My Magic Music Box, make troubles go so far away. And I thought this is deadly. Um, so we played we uh, we played, I just had a piano and voice playing that roughly for Jimmy Phillips and he said Mm, yeah, it's, it's not bad. I can see that could work. Or what else have you got? Wow. And I says, Oh no, Jimmy, no, that's that's that, that that's going that's that's the one there. Jimmy said, Look, lads, you're going into the studio in two days. You've got a you've got a band there. To play. You, you need to come up with something else, just to get some bit of value for money, if nothing else. So we left Jimmy's office. We went across to uh, another office that had a piano. This is at five o'clock in the day, where we've just got the knockback from Jimmy, and uh, sat down. And before the office closed at six o'clock, I'd kind of knocked out the song of the tune of Congratulations. I went home that night and we had a little uh, rhyming dictionary, Blackie we called it, little, it was just that size, uh-huh. um, to try and put a lyric to this tune. Da, 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 da. And here's the whole point. Da, 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 da. There could have been any one of a hundred titles for da, 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 da. 
I think I love you, do you remember, I can't forget you, any one of which would have just uh, meant that the song would have disappeared into, into like, you know, n- nothingness. Because the whole secret was um, trying to get... Da, 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 five five syllables. I'm playing. Da, da. Wonder is there a word with five syllables? I'm in Blackie, and I'm looking through. Congratu- that's five syllables. Congratulations. There must be a song called Congratulations. Wonder is there? It must be surely. Anyway, we'll go ahead. So I so we knocked out the <laughs> lyric of Congratulations, um, and that was so. My Magic Music Box. We had laboured over for weeks trying to trying to get my Magic change, changing the lyric and changing the tune a bit and, and the orchestration. Whereas Congratulations. I kind of knocked up um, in those couple of days. Wow. Um, but And it's still being played. Oh, that's a song which has fed, clothed and educated several of my children. <laughs> yeah, that's the, kind of, that's the kind of copyright that we all dreamed of writing in the early days in Denmark Street. Yeah. So how come All Kinds of Everything does not have your name on it? Because all I did there was, I, I, I had heard the original, the original version of it, um, which was quite different from the finished product. Um, and... I, first of all, I signed it to my publishing company. Um, I heard it in the heats in in, in RTE. Um, the, the only place that has my name on it is as the publisher and as the arranger um, and producer. Um, I, 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 I was I was at the BB or the, the RTE that what they called a song for Europe when uh, um, the selection process was happening. And I, I thought, yeah, this is the, the, the kind of simplicity of this song. Oh, yeah. Well, somewhere we got from Derry for a start off, and it was very kind of, very kind of folky and very innocent. But it was over orchestrated, was over orchestrated, and it was, it was kind of getting a bit lost. So the first thing I did when I sent it to my publishing company, I said, right, now this needs a bit of Eurovision fairy dust, is what it needs. Um, so I threw out a lot of the arrangement and put in that that little kind of minuetty thing, mm-hmm. you know, that the four bar intro, you know, mm-hmm. critical, critical, and that was so. Even as as uh, as Derry Lindsay, one of the writers, said, I mean, he said he said fair play to Coulter because when you hear that, when you hear those four bars, you know what's coming next. You know, that's become an identifiable part of the song. So that was my that was my uh, that was my role in the whole all kinds of everything. Um, which was um, just drawing on on my experience with the, with the previous one. You know, sixty seven with puppets, sixty eight with congratulations, sixty nine. We didn't compete because we were forming our own publishing company. But um, yeah, that was a pretty good run. One, two, three. Let's talk about your folk production time. Now mm. your work with uh, Planksty and uh, the Dubliners, Furies, all of that. Yeah. yeah so what I'm interested in because there's a Dark art to this production, mm. dark. You know, oh, yeah. what did you do? Like, what what did you actually do in the studio? Was the arrangement? Did the band come with arrangement? Just explain that. To well, us. each each band were different. The the, the the Dubliners came with the Dubliners didn't rehearse. Ronnie Drew used to say we rehearsed on stage, so you you didn't get uh, most most established acts are going to rehearse. You know, uh, twelve tracks before they go into the studio to make an album. Uh, the way I'd work with the Dubliners, we, we would gather in this small little studio in in, uh, in London, in South Moulton Street, and uh, Luke w- would sing me a bunch of songs, or Andy would sing me songs, and I would pick what songs we were going to we were going to we were going to kind of try and record and beat an arrangement uh, into, into into shape. Um, 
And how different were they? The, like their versions ver- versus the film. Well, they were all. They would all have been a bit rough. I mean, there's one. There's one that I can think of straight off the top of my head of the songs that Luke would sing. And I was making notes, not doing like that. Was it? That's one of those story songs that goes on and on and on. Look, I mean, that'll take up the whole side of the album. No. Um, I, I mean, look, I haven't said all of it, but look at an encyclopedic knowledge of folk music and an endless supply of songs. But he sang me this song called Joe Hill. And I thought, oh, I'll sing that again. Look, never heard this before. That's like a bit of Americana going on there. So I said, I'll tell you what I hear. I hear a piano in that. So I, I came up with a like da 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 which has become very much part of the part of that song. And for a lot of people, it's one of their favorite Dubliners tracks. That happened on the floor of the studio. Um and when I suggested a piano, um, it was kind of tumbleweeds blown through the studio because the likes of John Sheehan and, and Kieran Burke would have been more kind of focused. Piano? A Dubliners record? Um, but that's what I heard. You see, I inherited the Dubliners when they'd come off that, that high of Seven Drunken Nights, which was a double-edged sword. It, was a, it kind of gave them a hit record, got them a lot of work in kind of clubs, the, the, uh, the length and breadth of the United Kingdom, but it turned them into, into a variety act. Mm. The, the real core of the Dubliners um, got a bit kind of lost, and they were a bit jaded by the time I got. In fact, that was when Noel Pearson called me and asked me would I take on the producer. He said they're a bit tired. He said, you know, they need they need a fresh impetus. They need some fresh ideas because it's all a bit tired now, and they've lost the uh, they've lost the drive. So that, um, my role was really like a breath of fresh air through all of this. Um, so that was the Dubliners. Now Planksty were a completely different story. Planksty came in fully formed. Mm. Too much so, in fact, you know. Um, they were, there was a complete, that's a different set of skills with Planksty. Different set of skills with Planksty. With the Dubliners, you were building from the ground up. With, with Planksty, you were kind of fine-tuning, mm-hmm. you know, you were fine-tuning. And not, not only musically, but, but um, temperamentally. You think about Planksty, think of those five guys, think, all, all major talents, all major egos. Mm-hmm. Folkies, you know. Um, Can you give me an example of what you did to do, to trim it back? Uh, well, the, the the for the Planksty thing, as I said, they were pretty, pretty, pretty fully formed uh, in in terms of like going from um, like th- uh, the idea of using using Liam Ogue on the pipes and a song merging into a pipes a pipes. I mean, those ideas were all there. I can't claim any of that. My idea was just to try and and refine that where possible. No, that's got a bit, bit too long. We should do this. Let's, I'm, I'm not hearing it quite like that. I had an overview that I thought was, was what I could bring to it was, um, don't, get, don't get too involved in the kind of intricacies here. You know, This has still got to be consumed. But my main job was, um, apart from kind of navigating my way through the temperament um, of the five of them, um, Christy obviously was the boss, you know, um, but Christy was very well, in fact, that back then he was the least, the least musically talented. You know, Christian, he first admitted he knows like about six chords, you know, but here he's with, he's with Donal Loney and Andy Irvine, you know, and Liam Ogue, these guys are fucking wizzo musos, you know, wizzo. So um, Christy was, from that point of view, um, would have been aware that these guys are the real musical geniuses, you know. Christie brought his own his own stamp to things, but that that was the kind of balance. Um, um, but my, I, I remember thinking to myself, these guys are different. These guys are not. These are not a deadly A band. These guys, they, they've got this Sean Arita, almost uh, chamber music kind of approach to Irish music. You know, 
where it's not three, four, and everybody play. You know that it was there were textures that had to be used um, in, in like in an orchestration. So um, that was my job to, to to bring that to this day. I have to say that um, when I listen to the planks of the albums, when I listen to that black album, it sounds to me as if it was recorded last year. Yeah. Why? I'll tell you why. Because when I got it, when I finally got a deal for Planksty, um, you know, history now would tell you that Planksty were 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 um, a groundbreaking band. No, no doubt about that. But at the time, at the time, they were another. As far as record labels were concerned, they were another DLA band. And certainly, as far as record labels in London, who were prepared to give you a budget to record properly, rather than. Uh, point a microphone at Liam Ogue and, and point one at everybody, just everybody in it all together. I, one thing I did realise was that these guys, the textures here um, are very carefully and subtly put together. I have to be able to, to, to capture that on tape. So I, I, need, I need a proper budget for a studio and the time to, 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 to pay to this project. For example, as I mentioned before, a set of alien pipes were being recorded with one, one microphone pointed at the alien pipes. But the intricacies of, of, of their arrangement and of, and of Liam Oaks playing, um, first thing I did was, with a budget, for me it was more important when I, got, when I finally got a deal of Polydor Records, and I only got a deal because of, of my track record as, as, you know, as a commercial operator. Um, not that they were huge fans, but they said, well, if you think they're that good, I said, I think they're that good. So I got a budget. It wasn't a monumental deal. I mean, and this has been talked about. Chris had once said we got a shit deal. But I have to say, uh, Coulter made a great job of making the records. Of course, it was a shit deal because they were like they were, you know, they were a nothing band at that stage. I was more, I was more interested in getting a kind of a getting a budget to make the albums than getting like huge, huge uh, artist royalties because they were an emerging band. Um, so first thing I had to do was book a studio that had a multi-track facility, right? So that um, instead of of recording the, the pipes with like one mic. I could I could spread it over like five or six tracks, you know. I could have one mic uh, and divide one track to the chanter playing the melody, another one to the regulator, another one to the drone, and and two overheads um, for the for the stereo uh, spread. So now when I'm when I'm mixing um, Planksy and mixing the, I could I could, if I need to raise the 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 the, uh, the chanter, I can't raise the drone, raise the regulator. I've got control over it then. The and mix. how about the panning of that? Did you have the chanter going off to the left or the drone going to the right? Or did you just have it down the middle and then the two overheads going far left and far right? It depended, it depended very much. But we had, in fact, the studio was, was one of the better studios, command studio, uh, and they, 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 had a very good, they had a very good setup. Um, uh, it, was, it was a question of, of, of um, the multi-try, the, the mixing was, was very important. And that's why um, I'm proud of those albums because when, when I hear them back now, to me, um, they sound very fresh. They sound, I, I mean, today I would defy anybody to record them in any better way. Um, and truthfully, with a few exceptions, I don't hear a lot of, um, a lot of Irish folky acts that, are, that have gone that much further than Planksty. I mean, Planksty broke a lot of fresh ground. But I, I haven't seen... Um, Lancome, I suppose, would be would be uh, one of the kind of acts that are pushing the band out, of it, pushing the uh, the limits out a bit. But so, th- the role in Planksty was a very different one from the role in the Dubliners. The role or the role with uh, the Fury Brothers. I mean, every one of them had a different personality. Time check. Okay, we're thirty-one minutes in. Yeah. So, uh, how much longer do you want to go? Go on ahead, fire away. Yeah. Um, 
let's talk a little bit about uh, the Furies then. So what, how did the production technique differ from the other two acts? Again, different, different personalities for a start off. I mean, you've got to look at, it's not just the music, it's, a, it's a, part of a record producer's job. He's, I mean, he's, he's got to be part, part psychologist as well, you know. Um, uh, <coughs> so you have to know what kind of, what, uh, how to motivate, you know. Uh, you want to know like what the strengths and weaknesses are, who's the boss man and, and this, that and all. I mean, I remember, I remember the Furies. One of the very first days. Now, bear in mind, I'm coming from I'm coming from from uh, London, where I've been producing records and like EMI and with like London session players and London orchestras, whatever, and that kind of level of of of, of uh, proficiency. So, one of the first tracks to take, take. I'm up in the control room. The boy, the five boys are down in the in the uh, studio. Uh-oh. Take the, do the first take. I press the talkback button, lads. You're speeding up a lot in those last two choruses. Really need to watch that. It's getting, it's getting just far too fast. Watch that. Uh, Finbar, need to tune your banjo. Let your top strings sharp. Uh, Dave, Davey and George, it's an A minor chord. You should be playing good under that, under that minor. I said, also, I said, um, you're singing the wrong words, lads. It's not, I will love you all the time. I will love you every time, okay? There's a deathly silence coming back from the Furies. And then Eddie Fury says, any good news, boss? <laughs> So that tells you about the Furies. That tells you about the Furies. Um, they were a lot of fun, you know, they were a lot of fun. And they had a lot of, like, just innate musicality in them, you know. Uh, rough about the ages, but they had, they had a great charm and they had that kind of family thing. They had a, an uncanny... Davy Arthur and, and George Fury playing together in two different shapes in the guitars, you know, complemented each other, they kind of danced around each other, those kind of things. It was a question of harnessing that, along with Finbar's banjo and, and uh, harnessing Finbar's, Finbar's voice. I mean... Like the challenge to to to, uh, to 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 get a song that would kind of um, uh, work for Finbar, um, you know, was that 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 that's when I set myself. I've got, to, I've got to write a song for Finbar that's going to like be be strong. So the old man that that I wrote with Finbar in mind um, just suited that purpose perfectly, you know. Whereas Steal Away, um, that was Eddie singing or singing the lead. And it was just a lovely little, you know, gentle. And that, I mean, those are two songs that are still part of my repertoire. Still, I still do them on my gig. They're great. The old man particularly reminds me of Seamus Heaney. Is am I reading something that's not there? Is, was there, was he an influence in your writing for that? Not consciously. Not consciously. Not consciously. I, don't, I suppose there'd be you no know, similarities in our backgrounds and probably similarities in our in our uh, in our desire to uh, to paint pictures and tell stories and use. Use your 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 uh, language skills, you know. I mean, I've often said that I I there was an assumption that when when I was in partnership with Bill Martin that that um, <coughs> I wrote the music and he wrote the words. Absolutely not at all, not at all. I mean, um, I can't remember any time we actually sat down and did words and music. Not at all. Never was that. Um, but he was when that, when that partnership was 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 prolific. Was he was a great ideas man. You know, and he, he also was a great salesman. You know, I was quite happily working at the construction of the thing, and Bill would go out and knock doors trying to get the song recorded. You know, he was a brilliant salesman. Um, but no, so I would have I would have spent as long over honing a lyric as I would over honing a melody, without a doubt. And I'd be as proud of some of my some of my lyrics as I would have some of my tunes. And so you should be. So those acts would they have been playing with a click track at no, all? No. All and and how how much of it was overdubbed? 
Not a lot back then. Not a lot. Not a, the, 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 the whole process uh, in the years since, of course, are all about click tracks and all about, and all about uh, samples and this and that. But in those cases, you know, with the Furies, with the dubs, with uh, even Plankston, no click tracks, no, no, uh, none, of that, none, none of the technical tricks. They were, all, they were all able to kind of just produce on the floor of the studio. And to this day, it's, it's still the way I prefer to make records, you know. I mean, to me, the energy of putting five musicians together in a studio and get them playing together, it's just an indefinable thing. That's, that's why we make music. To me, uh, there are too many records that sound like as if they're made in a laboratory. Mm. You know, layer by layer by layer, and what that does, it produces something which is, which is, I mean, uh, perfect in terms of like it's, it's, it's pitching and this that and the other. But I mean, it's, a lot of them are lifeless. A lot of them are soulless. A lot of them don't have that, that, uh, that heart, that soul. Which you know, um, for me, especially in that area of music, is, is, is critical. You produced Sinead O'Connor just mm. after she ripped up the picture of the Pope. So was that in your mind at all in the studio? Not at all. Not at all. My, 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 my take on Sinead from day one, and I said this from day one, um, that a lot of people, a lot of people uh, forgot why she became famous in the first place, which was her voice. The stuff about ripping up the picture of the Pope uh, or b b becoming a priest or a nun or the bother boots and this, that, you know, to me, that was always a distraction. You know, she was a bit of a warrior, and she had her own battles to fight. Fair enough, God love her. She did. I mean, uh, mental battles as much as anything else. But no, for Sinead, it was that voice, that ability to breathe life into a song, um, was just, you know, for me. I, I, one of one of one of the songs I'm immensely proud of is "Scorn Not His Simplicity" because it was recorded by two of the finest voices Ireland ever produced, Sinead and and Luke. Um, and I thought when Luke recorded um, "Scorn Not." That, I said, this is the definitive version. This is the song. Now, since then, there have been dozens of other versions, um, some of which are, are kind of cringy, but that's, that's by the by. You've no control over that as a songwriter. But, <coughs> but Sinead's version was completely different, completely more, more tender, more female, more, more vulnerable, more Sinead, more Sinead. Um, and that was, I do remember... This was this is this this is a true story, man. When we were going through, the, the, she had come up with this concept of Universal Mother, which was the album we were producing. She was just, and she had written a lot of songs about her own, about her own struggles, her own mother, her own family, this, that, and the other. Um, and we were going through all the potential songs, and she said, "Do you know that? Do you know that that song about about the, the mentally challenged child?" She said, "Look, Kelly sings. She said, I love oh, wow. that." And she, she said, know. To me, "No, wow." No. I said, "What?" So he said, yeah, I, I said, yeah, she did. I played it. Is that the one? Yeah, yeah. I said, yeah, I know it. I wrote it. She said, yeah. I said, yeah. She didn't know. And she didn't know it was about your child? She didn't know. Wow. Um, so we recorded that one evening when we'd sent everybody else home. Um, and it was just Tony Harris, my engineer, was up in the control room. This was in, in, uh, in Lombard Studios in Dublin. I'm at the piano. Sinead is over there in the, uh, in the vocal booth. And I told Tony, just take the lights down. And we, uh, we'd, we'd obviously, in our, in our rehearsal for the album, we'd, we'd run it through and we set the key in that. I said, let's just, just get levels, Tony, just set the levels. So Sinead's arm here, just to set the tempo on the levels. We ran, we did half a take on the first one. Said, okay, let's go. Press, record. I started. Sinead saying, I'm watching her to get, to get her kind of flow, as, and the, the, the kind of rise and fall of the tempo she's doing. And, uh, Oh no, oh no, oh no, dee 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 bling. I sat exactly where I was. Sinead stood where she was. Tony Harris had got the wit not to f speak. 
and not to do anything. So we just all stayed exactly where we were to savour the moment. We knew something special had just happened, you know. We knew we just created, like, uh, something worthwhile. Um, those are moments that don't happen too often in the studio, but it was just, that was that moment there is one that I remember very well, just looking over Sinead's face and her concentration. We just let the, just let the, the her, her voice die off and the piano die off. Didn't move, just savoured it. And what I love about that song, now, forgive me, but because I, I sang that on your birthday in the Crane in Galway. All right. And it's a tribute to you. And, you know, I, I mentioned about the story behind it and all the rest. And this, uh, this lady in tears called out, you know, my cousin's got downs. And I said, so is mine, you know, and um, as a second cousin, you know. But it's such an emotional song. Mm. And, and whenever I was playing it, I was playing it in, I think it was uh, F sharp minor. And then you got F sharp minor going up to 2D minor. But it should be a major chord. It, yeah. It's, so explain what's yeah, going on it's there. Two minor, it's two minor chords in one of succession. In fact, I do it, I, I do it in C, so it's an A minor going to an F minor, and that's unusual. Um, uh, funny enough, some, somebody doing a critic, and they said, it's that second chord that just that, that, that kind of makes you, makes you kind of pay attention, that minor chord, that it's, that it's just that, that kind of that sadness or whatever, the, the two minor chords. Yeah, um, that song was... Uh, um, the first really kind of personal song, I suppose, you know, really deeply personal song, that, that's, a, that's a pretty traumatic uh, inspiration for any song, that, you know. But again, you know, to have Luke on hand was, was a blessing, you know, I mean, to have, to write a song uh, with, with Luke Kelly's voice in your head, you know, it was, was a pretty, pretty jammy situation to be in for any, for any songwriter, record producer, knowing that, you know, if you can come up with the material, you've got the best voice in the world, you can sing it. And you were writing that with his voice in your head? Oh, God, I. God, I, yeah. And the town I love so well, absolutely, was, was very much Luke Kelly. I never saw anybody else singing that. Never saw anybody else singing so that. So you wrote Town I Love So Well again with Luke's voice? Very much. Getting. You see, the, the Town I Love So Well came about, um, I happened to be in Derry visiting, visiting family on the weekend that internment was introduced. Um, and that was like, that was a trauma. Because, you know, like, like everybody else in Derry, I just felt the city's been violated. Violated. You know, there were guys been dragged out of bed at four o'clock in the morning for no, for no other reason than they played GAA or spoke Irish or went to Cayley dances or whatever. If they were tarred with that sort of brush in the eyes of, of British intelligence, they'd thrown their net very wide. Um, so that was, they were a bit kind of green, a bit nationalist, a bit Republican. Whoosh, four o'clock in the morning. Guys who were fucking at school with me who were no more gunmen or no more terrorists than I was. Boom. Dragged out of bed four o'clock in the morning in their in their cacks, th- thrown into the back of a back of a personnel car on the way to Fort George. I mean, that was that was like that was like Hitler stuff, you know. So um, out of anger and knee jerk reaction, I wrote uh, an anti internment song, "Free the People." I mean, it wasn't a great song because it was an anti internment song. It was, it was off the moment, but I remember playing it to to, to Kelly, and he was all over it like a rash. Of course, <laughs> was meeting potatoes for him. But a bit of anger there, um, and it was a hit for for, for Luke. But I was I was aware uh, that that I hadn't said what I really wanted to say, but what's going on back home, and on subsequent visits home, 
just been aware of, especially because I was going back, not every, you know, not every week, not every month, maybe the best six-month period, and I would say, Jesus, degenerated another another few steps in those six months. And it was a pall of gloom that was descending on Derry. I mean, people, had, you know, it was it had always been a kind of a musical sort of a city. People now kind of slumped shoulders and going past army checkpoints or we women going to do their shopping. And it was just, just an air of gloom over the whole thing. Jesus. So I thought, this is a historic time in, our, in our, our, the, the history of our city. There the, the should be a song about this. And I remember saying to myself, you know, look, you better step up to the plate here. And you've said in the past about how it took you a year to write those lyrics mm. and how a, a carefully or a carelessly slipped in lyric could have tilted over the edge oh. into a Republican... Um, <coughs> another rebel song. Yeah. Rebel song. We had plenty of them. We had plenty of them. What we didn't need right then was another rebel song. It was a very carefully... I mean, it had to be a very carefully chosen pass. To, it's, it's, you know, it's it's an anti-violence song. It's a love song about my town. It's not pro, pro anybody. Um, and it was, I had to be very careful. In, 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 and I was proud of the fact that I did. Um, and when I played it to Luke and got his... His say so. I mean, I knew it. I knew it kind of. Uh, Where did that happen? Oh, I can remember that very, very well. Um, first time I played it to look in a studio. I, no, no, quite the opposite. It was in a in a, a three star hotel, maybe a two star hotel in Sheffield, above all places. Uh, they they were they were on 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 tour in the UK. The, the Dubs they were playing a working men's club in Sheffield, and I had gone up to routine them for uh, recording an album the following week. And um, I get up there of an evening time so that I could catch the act. And then afterwards, and when the boys were heading to the bar, I said, look, um, I have a song I want to play. I, want, I don't want to play, I'll play it to you, but I want you to hear it um, tomorrow. Come down, like tomorrow morning when you, when, you're, uh, when you surface. So tomorrow morning became like, like 2 o'clock in the afternoon when Kelly, when Kelly appeared like with, with uh, dead eyes and like scruffy. He had, it obviously had a, you know, a long night. He sat on, on one of the twin beds. I sat on the other twin beds with my guitar. And I, th- this, uh, I mean, I'm probably pr- probably colouring this memory a bit, but I'm sure there's a kind of train station out there. And it was it was like a, a bustling northern city, you know, with a kind of, it was not attractive, shall I say. And flock wallpaper, the whole nine yards. And I played him the town on the guitar with my eyes closed. I didn't want I didn't want to be thrown, didn't want to be distracted by any expression that Kelly might have when I, when I was going through these words. And in case he would go, mm, or Because if Kelly had thought it was a piece of shit, he would have, I would have been the first one. He would have told me right there and then. Um, and I didn't, I, I wanted him to listen to the whole song. And I didn't, I didn't want to be, still a new baby, you know what I mean? You're unveiling a new baby for the first time. And that's still a bit protective. But, so I sang it through to, only a prayer for a bright brownie in the town I loved. Then I opened my eyes and looked over at Kelly and there were tears in Kelly's eyes. That was the moment I knew that I'd hit the spot with the song, right then, right then. I mean, subsequently hearing him sing it in, uh, for the first time in the Royal Albert Hall, uh, and just f- feeling that reaction of, of the live performance to a full house, you know, feeling that, that you know, um, those are moments that, you know, that you treasure as a songwriter. Who sang it better, him or John Hume? <laughs> John, John fell into the trap of a lot of dairy people who, who, who other they can or not believe that they can sing. Um, you know. <laughs> I remember he sang. He, he's, there's a piano performance in in the late late show maybe, and whatever maybe he started off in G, and then God knows John, what ended up. 
John went up in the G sharp, or, or or maybe maybe even it was worse than that. Maybe John even started singing, and the piano player had to find the key. Oh, yeah. I think that's what it was. Actually, I think it was James McCafferty was a piano player, yeah, and he oh, found it. Oh yeah, John was not a natural singer or a natural natural musician, but he had a great passion. You know, there, there was something about John Hume singing the town I love so well that worked. Yes. you know, because if anybody could stand up and sing a bit dairy, John Hume was the man to do it. Um, from a musical point of view, uh, not one of the best performances. From a dramatic point of view, I mean, he scored points for sure. Definitely. I'll tell you a story about that song. Now, it might take a minute. It starts off in China in autumn, the end of summer. I was out there and I couldn't get home. I was teaching out there. And me and my buddy Sean Og from Cavan, we were in the same school teaching. We were missing home, so we started up a session. And I befriended a few musicians out there, and they were in the orchestra. So we invited them along to, to our session. I was hoping they could play the bloody music, you know. So we printed out the music. They were fit to able to sight read, and they were whizzing through this stuff. They were from Ukraine. Oh. February 24th, swings around, mm. the invasion. And we were talking to them throughout, you know. They were hoping to go home, and then, you know, it turned out maybe they mightn't have a home to go to. Some time elapses, and then the person who's running the bar, Belgian Tim, because he's a businessman, his wife is from Ukraine, and they decided to have a charity night to raise some money. So they beamed across from Ukraine, these Ukrainian guys who are playing Irish music. And now Tim's a businessman, he's not actually a uh, sound guy. So he was doing the sound check during the week whenever the bar is empty. Mm. Saturday nights, it was only the speakers and the TV. It wasn't linked to the mixing desk, yeah. so you couldn't hear it. Yeah. I was sitting on the next to the TV, and I was picking out whatever I could and relaying it back to my Ukrainian friends and the rest of the bar. Then they started playing the town I love so well. So here we are. We're in a bar. There's, there's a band in Ukraine playing a song from Derry, being streamed across the web to this bar in China. We couldn't get home. And... A guy from Derry is picking up this song and playing it and singing it. They're singing the time. Yeah, and I'm singing it back then because they couldn't hear it because the speakers were. Oh, right, 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 right. And then I'm singing it back to my Ukrainian friends yeah. and I'm looking at them and they're in floods of tears. Mm. And then I realize that that song, thankfully, doesn't belong to me that night. Mm. And sadly, it belongs to them. Mm. The baton's now been handed sure. over. What, what, was, what goes through your mind whenever you hear a story like that? Well, uh, what, what, what surprised me about that song was how the specific can become universal. Yes. You know, I'm talking about street names in Derry. Street na- specific street names in Derry, which and I hear, I hear, La vie que j'ai tant aimé, it's a big anthem for the Bretons, and I hear, I hear different versions of it, and I know... It's, it's the sentiment in the song that is, that, it, that is universal. I mean, I love to hear stories like that. I love to hear that it's, it's the song that's been adopted and that it's got that kind of a, it's got that depth of meaning for people. Surely do. And you're fluent in Ukrainian, of course, for how many bars? Well, I can too. Davai fech chem, davai no fech chem, o se yak song buine, si cha no ve, sto boyo pochendem, davai poti henko fech chem. That's my U- Ukrainian. And why? That's, my, that's the extent. That's the extent of it. Um, yeah, I was I was intrigued to to, to be told um, by by a guy who works for those one of the government agencies that looks after Ukrainian settlement in Cavan. 
He said, we have a big gang of them here. Called me out of the blue. Said, just th- thought you'd be intrigued. Um, big gang, they're very musical, and they have kind of adopted Steal Away as, 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 as their anthem, an Irish song that they can relate to. I thought, ah, how come? Because I wrote it during the Troubles. And when I then thought, for me and you, let's start anew and make a new beginning. We'll leave behind the city streets, the gloom and desolation. I thought, yeah, now I get it. That was a start-off point. Um, I was intrigued by the whole thing. So we then we put together a choir, a 40, 40-piece choir, of Ukrainians from all of the communities, uh, north, south, east, and west, the best singers that they had. And luckily in Cavan, there was a, there was a Ukrainian couple, uh, Victor and Julia Boyko, who'd been there for 15, 16 years. They have a music school in, uh, in, in Cavan. So she was the kind of, she was the point person to gather all that together. And we, uh, we recorded Steal Away in English and in Ukrainian. And just a few weeks ago, we were playing the Board Gash Theatre in, in Dublin. And uh, I, I invited them all on stage to sing, which was, oh, God almighty. It was the most emotional. Um, uh, for them, you know, here's the thing. Oh, sadly, we've, we've become immune to statistics anyway, you know. And sadly, what happens is we get bored looking at figures of, 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 of death and destruction. Thirdly, now oh, the, the, the attention is on Gaza and Ukraine has slipped, slipped off the front pages. But of those 40 women, I mean, uh, they, they have brothers, fathers, sons who are still in Ukraine. Some of them are living in a, in a one-bedroom hotel, one bedroom, a single room in a hotel with a couple of kids. Um, and not knowing if they're ever going to see their husband again. What's going to be the end to this? Are going to get? Back? Is there going to be a home to go back to? Um, so to give them that that opportunity to to, to to live in a completely different environment on stage in the board gas theatre with two thousand people out there, um, and I set that up by saying, after the disgraceful events that happened in our city last week, I said I want this like a, an audience of decent Dublin people to give a proper welcome to these Ukrainians which they did, give them a standing ovation. But um, for them, for the Ukrainians, it was, you know, it's going to be a memory that'll stay with them, you know, and with me. I mean, I was in tears afterwards. I've got two more questions. Number one, cool filter is what Van Morrison calls you. Do you want to share a memory of him? Van? Oh God, there's so many. Um, I... I, uh, Van and I go back to when he, when he when he first arrived in London with Van Morrison and them, you know, and I was I was assigned to to uh, the, the company that I was working for, was a man called Phil Solomon, a little publishing company, management agency. Um, he looked after the Bachelors, who were that Irish act, but they were then very big, and a few others. But then this kind of hairy band arrived from from Belfast, and um, after after uh, a week or so, I was kind of assigned to them. Not so much as a musical director, more as an interpreter, because nobody could, nobody could understand what they were saying with a very thick East Belfast accent. Um, but uh, so I was kind of assigned, uh, I just kind of beat them into some kind of shape. They were very rough about the ages, there's no doubt about that. Um, but it all gelled, it all gelled when American producer called Bert Burns, very successful record producer and, and, uh, and, um, and songwriter, uh, under the boardwalk, uh, twist and shout at me. This guy was a serious record producer. Um, so again, I was I was in between between Bert and them. It was Bert, me, and them. And I watched 
everything. Was, I listened. I just was glued to all his attention to detail. How he was building this thing up. Um, that was my first, my first real experience of a proper record producer. You know, somebody who wasn't just sitting behind a desk. They used to call them A and R men. Sat behind a desk. You know, it was a pretty passive kind of role. But there, he was Bert Burns, not only writing the song, but he's getting in amongst the band with a little kind of baby tailor, and he's he's really kind of living it up. So. This is, this is my earliest recollection of, of, of the van thing. We were able to recording. Uh, uh, Decca was the record label because Phil Sullivan had a connection there. We were rehearsing out in uh, uh, Studio 2 out in West Hampstead um, with, uh, with Bert Burns. And uh, I was, as usual, have to be there. I was the kind of gopher, the in-between. And... Um, the tube that I was on, because I didn't have a car, this was early days, you know, I was still trying to make ends meet. Um, the tube broke down for some reason. So I had to come and get a bus or something. Anyway, I'm arriving a good half an hour late. I should have been there right at the start, you know, to get it all set up and this, that, that. But Bert had gone ahead since I didn't turn up. And as I walked into the room, they're running, uh, here comes the night. And it was the first moment, first time, first time I heard this song, in a, in a very raw state. This is just a run-through with Bird and the Band. And I knew uh, this is a hit. You know, because you hear hits on the radio where they've been played. It hadn't even got to that stage, you know. It was, this is it, and it's raw, raw stage. And I just knew this is a hit. This is a hit song. Um, because Bert had kind of just harnessed Van's kind of a, uh, his, his energy um, and the, the lyric, and that kind of that, that sort of Latino kind of a version in the big the big chorus. I thought this this is just crying out to be hit. It was a, it was a kind of road to Damas- Damascus moment. And this this is when it all works. This is great. Go on, do an impression of Van. You're great at it. Oh yeah, no 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 can't do that. Oh, there's too many stories about Van. I wouldn't want to tell too many. I'd get myself in trouble. But no, he is he is he's a. Uh, He's larger than life, and I mean, we're you know, it's we, of course we've had our fallen outs, etc. Um, but uh, Van would often, when I, what many came said, uh, yeah, 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 get a culture here, get, get in, can you go in the studio? I get, get Maloney's here, he was working then on and off with the, with the, with the chief, yeah, 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 Maloney, I need you to come in and go jug, what go jug, meaning go jugular, I need you to come in and go juggle, Maloney. So or when, when he'd be doing a session and we kind of falling apart, he would call me to come in and kind of try and pull it together. So uh, that was, you know, we, we just, we've, we've, we've been friends and acquaintances in and out for, for all of that time. That, I mean, I'm talking about like 1964, 65. Phil, your life is so rich, so long, frankly, as well, yeah. unfortunately. So far. <laughs> so far. But I mean, you've, Elvis has recorded mm. your bloody song. You know, and then you have the likes of Ireland's Call, which, you know, I love the story that you think it was good that they came to a Northern Irish person who got the subtleties of... I think that was their smart move. That was the smart move. I knew why. I knew why. Willie Anderson, who was in the squad, (coughs) and he told me this story himself, he was in the squad in that first Rugby World Cup in Australia when... Few weeks before, had there been that IRA bomb that had killed a, a chief justice, but had maimed a couple of the rugby players on, going in a different direction. So that was fresh in everybody's mind. So the powers that be uh, down in, in Australia said, playing uh, I run event, maybe not not uh, maybe a bit too insensitive. We need to play something else. And Willie 
uh, says, I recommended Danny Boyle. I said, it would have been a very good choice, Well, He says, no, but somebody had a cassette of James Last, uh, Rosa Tralee. So for the Irish anthem, they played the Rosa Tralee. I think that finally, that, 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 that finally dawned on the powers that be in ARFU. We've got to confront this situation, the situation where the, the squad is full of guys from the north and the south. And I'm, I'm continuing to explain it to people down here. That, that, look, rugby in the north of Ireland is played normally in non-Catholic schools. In Catholic schools, it's either soccer or GAA. So therefore, the rugby players who, 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 uh, who, who do well in, uh, in the north and then play for Ulster and then play for Ireland are from that background. You know, they come from a non, from a unionist background. For them, um, uh, I, the soldier song is not their anthem. God save the Queen is. You might not like that, but you have to respect it. So uh, that was, we were in a period when I was called in by the, by the IRFU to come up with the song. It was a kind of a hands across the border, kind of all-inclusive kind of period. Those were the buzzwords. So they wanted a song that could be sung comfortably by, by players and supporters like from the north or the south. It was a challenge, certainly was. So... Elvis, uh, Ireland's Call, Eurovision, Bay City Rollers, haven't even mentioned, mm. uh, Dubliners, Furies, Planksy, Sinead O'Connor, mm. all this history. Mm. Yeah, You've got 23 platinum discs. We haven't even talked about the Tranquility Records. Spanish. 23 platinum discs, 39 gold discs, 52 silver discs, two Grand Prix Eurovision Awards, five Ivor Novello Awards. Mm which uh, includes Songwriter of the Year, three American Society of Composers, Authors and Publishers Awards, a Grammy nomination, mm. a Media Award, a National Entertainment Award, a Rose Door, and so on and so on and so on. Here we are. Mm. We can see your age because you've been celebrating your 80th. Uh, oh, yeah. So you're 81. 81. And you're in Galway, you're playing tonight. You're dosed with a cold or a flu yeah. or something. That's the price you pay for doing one-nighters. Why are you still doing this? And do you have an ambition? My ambition is to keep doing what I'm doing. And why am I doing it? Because I enjoy it. And because this is what I live. This is what I do. You know, this is honing my craft. This is, this is giving, giving life to my songs. You know, this perpetuates the song, the fact that I'm out performing. Um, and it celebrates the role of the songwriter. I'm, I'm, I'm very impatient um, with, I mean, when we buried Shane McGowan, he was a proper songwriter. But there's a lot of people masquerading as songwriters, you know. This new, this new collective now, singer-stroke-songwriter. You don't seem to be like a singer, full stop, a singer-stroke. Everybody's now a singer-stroke-songwriter. If, if only it were that easy, you know. The, the, the craft of the songwriter is something very precious to me. And that's my, what my gig does, it celebrates that, you know. Um, uh, and in an era of TikTok, you know, uh, songs have to be cherished, have to be celebrated. Um, I was asked by an, by an American uh, radio guy some time ago, uh, Mr. Coulter, can you give me a, a, like a short, short definition of a great song? You know, I need a short definition. I mean, I said, he said, no, I, I, you know, I know the ingredients, but I, I said, I'll do better than that. I'll give you a one-word definition of a great song. One word? Yeah. What? Longevity. Exactly that. Longevity. If the song's been around for 40 years, it's de facto a great song. And I can't say any of these TikTok songs are going to be around for 40 years. The problem is, um, there is no, you know, when I told you a bit by my Denmark Street a training, where every, every second Friday we'd, we would demo six new songs, the important thing is the following Monday we would go in and play them to, to our publisher, who was an old-time publisher, had discovered Kennedy and Carr, Jimmy Kennedy and Michael Carr, that he was the Lennon McCartney of the war years, of Lionel Bart, who wrote Oliver. I mean, he was a proper music publisher and songwriter. 
he would analyse the songs, tell you where we were going wrong, and as often as not, five of those six songs would end up straight in the bin. That mentoring, that learning the craft, the craft of songwriting. You know, nobody is a born songwriter. It's a craft that you learn. You're born with some of the tools. You know, you might have a flair for music, a bit, bit of a, an ear for, for, for language, but you have to learn the craft of putting it all together. That's not happening anymore. That's not happening anymore. Um, and that kind of depresses me when a, a generation of, of, of record by that generation are now, I've got such a short attention span. The whole, the whole structure of a song of like, what I was saying there, like a four bar intro to create the mood, then a verse, then your hook, then the chorus. That's all dismantled now. Forget about, forget about the four bar intro, forget about the verse, hit them with a hook right away. That's, that's, that's not a song that's going to endure. That's not a song that's going to endure. That's that's calculated for you know instant gratification. And a song, those TikTok songs are going to be gone in another six months. And whenever you're arranging, I'm sorry to go in here, but whenever you're arranging, are you thinking A minor six going into F major seven with a G added down or whatever, or do you follow an inner ear? My head is telling me to go to this chord. My how does that work? It's hard to tell the difference, you know, when you sit down to a piano because those because you're fluent, you know, um, in, in the harmonic progressions and stuff. You find out what what what's the the last thing you want to do is, is, is just try and be clever for the sake of being clever. It has to work, you know. And as often as not these days, anyway, if I get halfway through writing someone, it's 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 sounding it's beginning to be a bit laboured. I'll throw it in the bin because if it, if it's going to be laboured, then the finished product is certainly going to be sound laboured. You know, it has it has to have a flow and a natural a natural kind of a a, a, a natural build and a natural a, a natural arc. That's what I'm talking about. You know, the structure of a song. Um, that's a mentor. That that's mentoring. From, from music publishers doesn't happen anymore. How would you like to be remembered? Hmm. As... Oh, good question. I suppose... Hmm. A professional. That's the thing, you've got to be a professional about what you're doing. Um, and that, I suppose, you know, that attention to detail and caring about stuff, that, that will go right across your, your, your whole, you know, your whole approach to life as well, you know. Um, not, not taking shit for granted or not being, being, being lazy or scuzzy about stuff, you know. Again, I come back and say what I said at the very start. You only get out of any enterprise what you're prepared to put into, you know, whether that's writing songs, whether that's a relationship, whether that's a marriage, whether that's your... your, your uh, your your connection with your children, whatever it might be, you know, it takes takes effort. And the the biggest the biggest fallacy of all is uh, talented people who believe that because they're talented, the world owes them a living. I'm am I'm, I'm blue in the face saying this. Talent only gets you in the game. It's all the hard work that keeps you there. And that's why you stuck around. Stick around. Cool filter, Phil Coulter. Go to me in my August. My pleasure, man. My pleasure. Okay. Thunder. This has been a Solitaire Media original podcast and production.